That's a wonderful hymn that reminds us that God has a perfect standard, a perfect law, which is always good. And so we want to consider that perfect standard this morning by turning in the book of Romans to Romans chapter 2, and we'll read the first 16 verses of Romans 2 and under the heading of the perfect standard. The perfect standard from Romans 2. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word this morning. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Here ends the reading of God's holy word, may he add his blessing to it this morning. Blessed congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we've already read this morning from Exodus chapter 20 that thousands of years ago on Mount Sinai, the Jewish people gathered around the mountain as the presence of God thundered and crashed we read that God gave us His perfect standard. He gave His people His law. In fact, the Ten Commandments in Hebrew are actually called the Ten Words. And these Ten Words perfectly, succinctly describe God in His holiness and also describe Our call to holiness. We mentioned it already. 
But one of the constant refrains throughout not just the Old Testament, but also the New Testament, is to be holy as I, your God, am holy. You see it from Leviticus all the way to 1 Peter. The call to be holy. But the thing about the law, and one of the reasons we read it in our Reformed churches every Sunday, is that every time we read it, we are impressed with God's holiness. We are impressed with what He is asking us to do. But when we look at our own lives and our own hearts, we know that it is true what Paul says in Romans 3, that we have fallen short of the glory of God. It shows us also where we've fallen short. One thing we noted briefly the last time we looked at Romans by way of reminder, we looked at chapter 1, verses 18-32. through 32, Is that the sins that Paul was listing there would have been in particular Gentile sins. These were sins that Gentiles would have struggled with. You see, the Jews would have been well aware of the sins that Paul lists because they had the law. They had the commandments. They would have known in verse 23 that idolatry is a violation of the first commandment. It's sinful and to be avoided. They would have known in verse 30 the dishonoring of parents was a violation of the fifth commandment. They would have known in verses 26 and 27 that homosexuality was a violation of the eighth commandment and so they would have avoided it. And so you need to imagine with me this morning that as Paul is listing these sins in chapter 1, there may have been some Jews sitting in that church nodding along with Paul. Maybe there was even a charismatic Jew sitting in the back who shouted, Amen! As I try to get some of you to do from time to time. A Jew may have shouted, Amen, as Paul said, those who practice such things deserve to die. In verse 32. My point is this. If you were a Jew sitting in the Roman church, you might have felt pretty good about yourself while Paul was reading, listing, excuse me, those sins in verses 18 through 32. That is, until Paul gets to chapter 2. In chapter 2, the Apostle Paul teaches us that the Jews, that the religious, struggle just as much with sin as the irreligious Gentiles do. And that God's perfect standard cuts through it all, right to the heart, whether Jew or Gentile whether religious or non-religious, male, female, black or white, He cuts through it all and shows us that we have all fallen short. But is that the only thing He shows us? Remember the whole thesis of this book, verses 16 and 17. The Gospel. And the righteousness of God that both the religious 
and the irreligious need. Here's our theme for our time together this morning. Both Jew and Gentile will be judged according to God's perfect standard. Both Jew and Gentile will be judged according to God's perfect standard. I want to show you this in three points this morning. The standard misunderstood, the standard upheld, and God's moral standard. That's the standard misunderstood, the standard upheld, and God's moral standard. So let's look first at the standard misunderstood. So we've seen already that Paul is addressing the Jews here in chapter 2. We think that there would have been many Jews present in the Roman church because at Peter's Pentecost sermon, where thousands of people came to know Jesus Christ, we are told in chapter Acts 2, verse 10, that there were many Jews who heard, repented, and believed. But remember that one of the reasons Paul is writing this letter is to promote unity. Unity in what? Remember what section of Romans we are in. Romans is built upon these three foundational pillars. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. From chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to 3, verse 20, he's dealing with the subject of guilt. He wants the church to be unified, listen to this, in guilt. We don't think about guilt like that too often, do we? Paul wants us not only to have unity in the good news of Jesus, but he wants us to have unity in the knowledge that we all need Jesus. There should be no one who feels like they are morally superior to someone else in the Christian church. And he addresses two sins that are fairly common for people who struggle with self-righteousness. He's going to address the sin of self-righteousness and he addresses the sin of what he calls despising God's mercy. Look at self-righteousness. Remember that some of the Jews thought that because God gave them the law, because God gave them so many good things, that they were immune to God's wrath and judgment. If you have a Bible and you flip back to Luke chapter 18, we're told the story of a young man who comes to Jesus and asks Him this question, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, do the commandments. You know the commandments. Obey the law. Do you remember that young man's response? All these I have done from my youth. He is saying, I have obeyed the law perfectly. I've always known the law. I've always had the law. And so I've never disobeyed it. And so I won't have judgment. Because I am perfect. God's chosen person. A Jew. But here's the funny thing Paul says in 2 verse 1. The very people who thought they could avoid judgment are the very ones who judged others. Look at verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you 
condemn yourself. Verse 1 very simply says, I like the way R.C. Sproul puts it, you're being a hypocrite. That's what's going on in self-righteousness. You condemn someone else and exalt yourself. That's what passing judgment means. Failing to see your own sinfulness and then pronouncing a judgment on someone else. It's the belief that others are worthy of judgment, but I am not. And what we do when we pass judgment is we actually are justifying ourselves in our own minds. I'll give you a few examples of what this looks like. Self-righteousness, says the Apostle Paul, would be like if we saw somebody struggling with their children. And we say, well, good thing I raised my kids the right way. We look down on them and we exalt ourselves. Or we look down on someone for the way that they spend their money. Or the habitual sins that they struggle with in their life. Or the church that they go to. And the reason Paul says that we are so tempted to do this as religious people, he says in verse 3, because we think we are justified in ourselves. We think that God agrees with our condemnation of others and the justification of ourselves. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things yet do them, that you will escape the judgment of God? That's what self-righteousness is. Judging others for the sake of exalting yourself. But look what he says in verse 1. In passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because we do the same things. I don't think he's saying you do the same things as the Gentiles, for example, like you bow down to an idol, or you're disobedient to your parents, or you're a homosexual. But if we flip back to Romans chapter 1, Specifically beginning in verse 29. What does Paul say there? He's not talking about actions anymore between verses 29 and 31. But he's speaking of attitudes. He's speaking of our minds. He's speaking of sins that we commit with our hearts. See, we may actually have well-behaved children. We may go to the right church. We may not struggle with somebody else's habitual sins. But we all struggle with our attitudes, our minds, and our hearts. Jesus taught us the same thing. Remember in Matthew 5, He says, you may not have murdered somebody, but if you're angry with someone, it's as if you've murdered them in your heart. You may not commit adultery with somebody, Matthew 5.27, but if you lust after them, it's as if you've committed adultery in your own heart. When we look down somebody upon somebody for the way that they're raising their children, have we always raised our children correctly? 
look down upon when we look down our nose upon someone for the way they spend their money have we always been good stewards have we always honored and gone to the right church and served the lord we're supposed to or not struggled with habitual sin see in passing judgment we are failing to see the condition of our own hearts aren't we And so Paul makes that audacious claim. That's why he says that. That we practice the same things. And so back in chapter 1, Paul said to the Gentiles in verse 18 that, or it's not verse 18, excuse me, but he says in chapter 1 that they are without excuse. And Paul says the same thing to the Jews today. They are without excuse in their sins because you pass judgment. You are just as guilty as the Gentiles. Hypocrisy, self-righteousness, is a major hindrance to the unity of the church and the Gospel message. How so? John Calvin puts it this way. Hypocrites, Calvin says, attract the attention of others by their external holiness. And they think because they have the acclaim of others that they are pleasing God. And their security is in this. Close quote. In simpler language, self-righteousness undermines the Gospel. It undermines the Gospel. Because Christians are called to trust in the righteousness of Christ given by faith in the Gospel. And hypocrisy and self-righteousness is a trusting in yourself rather than Christ. So the Apostle Paul says self-righteousness, people who struggle excuse me, with self-righteousness are in just as much need for the Gospel. Look at what the Apostle Paul goes on to say in uh, verse 4. Something he calls despising God's kindness. The second way the Jews misunderstood the law is that they presume, verse 4, on God's kindness. That word presume actually is more often translated in the New Testament as the word despise. What does that mean? He is saying that when we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, verse 2, and that we're all going to stand before the Lord, verse 3, we are actually despising His kindness if we do not turn to Him right now and ask for forgiveness. Or do you presume, verse 4, on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, the Jews often thought, we will escape judgment. We will not be judged because look at how kind God has been to us. He's given us the sacrament of circumcision and the Passover. He's given us the law. He's given us the promised land. We will not endure judgment. And something, this is something we fall into so quickly as well. We say life is good. 
We have no troubles. We have tranquility. God is smiling upon me. I have no need for Him. But the Apostle says that the purpose of His kindness is actually to lead you to repentance. Now I recognize that it may be challenging to understand the contrast in between Romans 1 and Romans 2, but Jesus actually gives us a wonderful example of this in the New Testament. He gives a famous story of the prodigal son. In Christ's famous story, there's a father who has a son, and the son forsakes his father. Remember the story? And he squanders his wealth on prostitutes. He's licentious. He's materialistic. He's disobedient. But he's not the only son that the father has, isn't he? There's a second son. This son is obedient. He's compliant. He's externally, in his, with the work of his hands, doing everything right. But the point of Jesus' parable in Luke 15 is that both sons are lost. They're both alienated from the Father. They're both in need of salvation. Romans 1, if you will, is describing the first son. The son who gives himself to all these horrible sins. But the Romans 2 is describing the second son who stays in the Father's house, who obeys the Father, is externally righteous, and expects God's favor for His own goodness. What is Paul telling us in these first four verses? I like the way Tim Keller puts it. Even the religious need the Gospel. Even the religious need the Gospel. In these two groups, Paul expresses that there is nobody who is exempt from sin and nobody who doesn't need the grace of Jesus Christ. So here's an application for you. We can be just as lost in unrighteousness, in self-righteousness, I should say, as you can be in unrighteousness. I don't want to scare you. I'm not a fire and brimstone kind of guy, but we can go to church every Sunday. We can say the right things. We can look the right way. We can put on the face and not be right with God. How do we become right with God? That's why we have a point two. Notice the standard upheld. Here we come to that part where we were reading, uh, maybe our blood pressure started to go up as Protestant Christians here. Remember that the whole book of Romans is about the Gospel. It's about the Christ won and the Christ given righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So then what in the world is Paul saying in chapter 2, verse 6, that he will render to each one according to his works? Is he contradicting himself, as some have said? 
from verses 16 and 17. He's already blown it in verse 6. What we'll see in just a moment here is if you flip to Psalm 62, Paul is actually quoting King David. And the context helps us understand Paul's meaning. Paul is contrasting here the Jew and the Gentile, the irreligious and the religious, and so is David in a sense. In Psalm 62, David is describing two groups of people. The first group of people he describes in verses 3 through 4. These are people who plot against David, they lie. They say one thing with their lips and they do the opposite with their hearts. Verse 4, they have done evil works. But look at the, how the other group is described. Verse 1, their souls in silence wait for God. Verse 2, they confess, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Verse 7, on God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. The second group has sought to find salvation from God. Paul is quoting Psalm 62 because God is the one who judges the heart, isn't He? And he describes how God will look into the hearts of these both groups. The bad and the good. So look at how the heart is right with God. First, he describes those whose hearts are right with God. Go back to Romans 1, verse 7. He says, the person who is right with God is patient in doing good. That is, that godliness is the theme of their lives. Everything they do is for the glory of God. They seek His glory and honor and immortality. They seek for glory, honor, and immortality. That is, people whose hearts are right with God, they always live for God's glory. They always live for God's honor. They never pursue their own desires. But strive every moment for God's approval. Doesn't Jesus teach this this in the summary of His law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Put simply, the heart that is right with God is good. The heart that is right with God is God-glorifying. The heart that is right with God is God-honoring and forsakes this world and pursues heaven. Look at what Paul says. To that person He will give eternal life. And then he describes the person whose heart is not right with God. In verse 8, he says that person whose heart is not right with God is self-seeking. That's the opposite of doing good. We serve ourselves. Those who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. I think the NIV uh, renders this well. It says those who reject the truth, but choose to follow evil. There's a lack of teaching, teachability, a refusal to submit to God. And we pursue our own convictions and desires. This is the heart that's not right with God and will receive wrath and fury. So I have a question for you this morning. Here's these two groups. You've got the one that is right with God and the one who is not right with God. To which group 
do you belong? Are our hearts right with God? And are we therefore assured of eternal life? Or are our hearts not right with God? And are we assured of wrath and fury? Let's allow the shoe to drop this morning. We know that the Gentiles are not right with God because they sin. But what about the Jews? Look at chapter 2, verse 5. God is also angry with their sins. Do you see Paul's point here? Whether you are a Gentile or a Jew, religious or irreligious, male or female, black or white, rich or poor, all have sinned and stand in great need of the Gospel. Apart from the Gospel, no one's heart is right with God. We all belong to the people, to the group, excuse me, of people whose hearts are not right. We haven't measured up. We aren't perfect according to His perfect standard. Again, 3 verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here's an old joke. Remember I did a word study on the word all? You know what all means in Greek? It means all. All of us, collectively, are in the group of not having hearts right with God. And this is what he's saying in verses 9-11. through It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek. God doesn't show partiality. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't lessen His judgment based on your position or privilege in life. All will be measured according to His perfect standard. So what is that perfect standard? Question 3 of the Heidelberg Catechism says, it is the law of God. What this means, my friends, is that one day, every single one of us will stand before the Lord. And every single one of us, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, will be evaluated by the law of God. His perfect moral standard. And on that last day, when we are examined according to the deeds that we have done in our flesh, we will be examined according to the law. We will not be examined according to the holiness, the standard of holiness of our co-workers, your family, your spouse, but the standard is God's holiness itself. Young children, you may be able to hide the fact that you've been skipping school from your mom and dads. Unless you're homeschooled. Husbands and wives can conceal from each other their lust, their anger, and their vanity. You can hide your sin when the elders come to visit, but everyone will stand before the Lord who sees all. This is what Paul is saying in verses 12-15. through 15. 
Just like all people suppress the truth, all people know the law. We all know the Ten Commandments, at least vaguely. Herman Bovink says, go to an uncontacted tribe in the wilderness and you will find them following some semblance of the Ten Commandments. We all know you shouldn't murder. You shouldn't commit adultery. We should honor God. Why is this important? Because the law is written on our hearts and our consciences. And this is Paul's point. The Jews know the law and disobey. The Gentiles know the law and disobey. And all people will be judged by that law. So on that day, look with me at verse 16. When God judges the secrets of men, He will open up our hearts like a book, it says. And our secret sins, the skeletons in our closet, will be dealt with fairly and justly. But is that all Paul says in verse 16? No. Chapter 2, verse 16. On that day, according to my gospel. This is the whole purpose of this book. Flip back to chapters 1, verse 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith even on that last day of judgment when all of us will stand before the Lord and every secret sin be exposed before God, He reminds us there is good news for us. And the good news is not that we will avoid judgment like the Jews thought, or that we're not worthy of judgment like the Jews thought. The good news is that God will judge all men according to His perfect standard. And that perfect standard has been met in Jesus Christ. And that by the righteousness that God gives to us in faith, when He opens up the book of your heart to see your sinfulness, it will be a blank page. In Jesus, wiped clean, though your sins were as scarlet, they will be made as white as snow. So that for everyone who reads the law and falls on their knees and says, I am a sinner, and they look to Christ for forgiveness. God on that last day will not say guilty. He will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because by faith we are given the righteousness of God. So that when God's people in Christ stand before Him, they are perfect pure, holy, as the Catechism says, as if they have never sinned nor ever even been a sinner. 
according to my gospel. That's how hearts are made right with God. Before we conclude this morning, we should be reminded of this wonderful story where there was once a Pharisee standing in the synagogue with the tax collector. And the Pharisee exemplified the type of Jewish person that Paul is talking about where he stands and before God in the synagogue, he lifts up his hands and he says, God, I thank you that I am not a sinner like this tax collector over here. Paul says that's the person who needs the gospel. But the person who has the gospel, the tax collector we read in the gospel of Luke, he beats his breast. And what does he say? God be merciful to me, a sinner. The perfect standard of, Jesus, of God is not to show us how good we are or that we're not sinners or that we will avoid judgment. The perfect standard of God shows us how much we need Jesus Christ. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, Religious or irreligious. We will all stand before God's law, uh, before God and His law, but if we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, every sin, even the secret sins, will be remembered mo- no more. And I say again, the verdict will be well done, my good and faithful servant. Christ has done it, He has paid for every sin. And all of us are called to come and embrace Him by faith and receive His righteousness. Amen. Let us pray. Merciful God, we come to You this morning and we give You thanks. Thank You that even though we are tax collectors, that with eyes lifted up to heaven, we can cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and You will answer us in Your grace and in Your goodness. And so, Father, we pray that You would work in our hearts this righteousness of Christ. Show us our great need for Jesus. Not to trust in our own verdicts of self-righteousness, but to look to Him for righteousness. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.